patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone and welcome to episode 102 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host Sherman Tylowski. Thank you all so much for tuning in this week. This is our first interview episode since our milestone episode 100 just two episodes ago and it's the first one with our, the brand new schedule that I announced last month. I will now be having episodes on the first two Mondays of each month. One interview episode and one solo episode for all of you. First of all, a very special thank you once again to our Patreon members. They provide incredible support to the program and keep this program running. I also want to thank, of course, our listener base. And for all of you who tune in to our episodes, it's really, really, really amazing to see how so many people have been able to enjoy all these solo episodes and interview episodes. And we got a lot more to come with this new schedule. It's going to be a great time to convene twice a month and to continue those amazing conversations that we've been having for the last two years. Also, if you haven't already, check out our brand new Friends and Fellow Citizens mugs made in the USA. Get yours now at shermantylowski.com. The link is down in the show notes below. Today's guest is Aaron Phillips. Aaron is the co-founder and president of the nonprofit organization Power to Parent Union and is spearheading education freedom for Nevada PAC. Her involvement in her children's school in the Clark County School District led her to recognize a need for an organization that would help protect parental rights. She is passionate about empowering parents to advocate for their children and their parental voice. Under her leadership, Power to Parent formed as the first parent union in Nevada with more than 10,000 members and now has chapters in six states across the U.S. In 2021, Phillips launched a signature-driven effort to create education freedom accounts to allow parents the freedom to choose the education that best fits their child's needs. She's a regular guest on talk radio and has represented power to parent on local and national news. While she is passionate about defending parental rights, her biggest passion is her family. Erin can be found most days at the baseball field watching one of her five kids play their favorite sport. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I am very happy to welcome Aaron Phillips to our show. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us to this week. Thanks for having me, Sherman. Well, I want to first ask you a bit about how you got involved in politics, but more specifically about education and parental rights. So uh, tell us about how you got involved, and uh, I'll later ask you a bit about uh, Power to Parent as well. Yeah, of course. Well, you know, initially I was just a mom and I I had three kids that were young. I was staying home and I went to a a meeting that my local elected trustee uh, for my school board district was holding. And um, I had been going to those meetings and I happened to get an email that there was an invite only meeting about sex education. And I wasn't really clear on what they wanted to do. So I decided to go ahead and and go to that meeting. Uh, And when I got there, I really you know, recognized quickly that I was the only parent at that meeting, number one. And then number two, they had brought in a um, 
someone to uh, from New York City who was um, from an organization called SECUS, which stands for Sexuality Information Education Council of the United States. At the time, I had not heard of that organization, um, but they had paid a consultant to come and, and um, talk about the gaps that we had in our sex education. And the guide they introduced was called Comprehensive Sexuality, uh, or yeah, Comprehensive Sexuality Education K through 12. And so at the time, my oldest was in third grade, and I, um, you know, I had younger kids. And I thought, what do they want to teach my kids in kindergarten? You know, about about sex education. And so as we were going through the guide, I was very uncomfortable with not only the topics that they were wanting to discuss, but also what they were deeming age appropriate um, for specific talk- topics. And I realized I was also in the minority just in general in that in that room as far as being concerned about some of the um, groups that had sponsored the, this guide. So, um, you know, I, I began asking questions to my trustee and then really got a lot of pushback. And so I realized that there was more to this than I probably need new at the time. And so um, I called the curriculum and development people at my local school district. And my school district here is the fifth largest in the country um, in Clark County. And so, you know, I thought, wow, there's a lot of kids that stand to, um, you know, have these lessons sit in front of them. And I was just really uncomfortable with that. So when I got all the pushback that I was getting from the trustee and then the district, I began calling parents and just really very grassroots, just had one parent called another parent who sent an email to their email list and ultimately, we um, required the school district to open up these meetings, they, to hold more of them and open them up to the public so that it wouldn't be invite only. And then um, when they came to those meetings, they were actually um, presented with the guide. And then those parents, um, in turn, flooded a school board meeting uh, several months later. And the guide was ultimately pulled by the superintendent. And so that really, that whole process was very eye-opening for me, even though I, I didn't enter into that process trying to be involved with politics or starting an activist organization. But um, I realized what was happening was a lot less about sex education and so much more about social engineering and it had been happening for a very long time and it was very well funded. And the organizations that were funding them were groups like Planned Parenthood and Human Rights Campaign and just a lot of very progressive liberal um, groups. And I that I really was, you know, I didn't agree. They didn't align with my my worldview, my ideology. I didn't want those uh, groups putting uh, curriculum into the schools uh, where my kids were going. And so I think what we recognized was there was a, a greater need for parental advocacy that did not exist. Um, we were really felt like we were behind by the time we got involved and um, obviously not nearly as well funded, right? Not funded at all. And as, you know, groups like Planned Parenthood. So we just really had a mentality that we needed to protect parents' rights and empower parents to advocate for their kids. And so that was um, that was almost eight years ago. And so fast forward, uh, you know, now we had started Power to Parent, um, you've seen now in the last two years where this is now becoming very, um, I don't know if popular is the right word, but parents have woken up, right? They've seen what um, we've been seeing and what we've been trying to empower and identify parents um, to inform them on what's going on for all these years. And now, um, you know, we just had an explosion all over the country where this is happening and parents are finally going, okay, we can't, we can't allow this any longer. And so that's been the kind of the journey of Power to Parent for me. Well, that's an incredible story just because I really love the passion that you have, but not just the passion, you turn passion into action. And that, to me, I think is the big difference maker here. And you were able to rally so many different parents from all walks of life, I feel like, not just you know, one particular type of thing, but parents who are concerned about their kids. 
So my question to you is, when it comes to what Power to Parent does and its philosophy, what do you think are the central pillars of an organization like yours and how that fits in with the state of politics that I think is really brewing on the local level now more than perhaps at any other time in recent memory? We want to empower parents to advocate for their kids, and we want to protect fundamental parental rights. So the idea that parental rights are fundamental, I think, is something that was uh, not really recognized as much by the greater kind of like the average parent, right? But but what I think they also don't recognize is how um, under assault those rights have been for many years. So I would say the idea that we want to identify and inform parents who do care deeply about their right to protect their child and, and to parent their child is probably the central pillar, as you as you said, or, or focus of the organization. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm just one mom. You know, I have five kids. I am busy going to baseball and, you know, all the other things that I have to do. And that's how parents are. I mean, that's what parents do is we we want to raise our children and we want to be involved in their lives and and we don't have time to be activists, you know? So I think that's that's one of the hardest parts about this job. But, but what we're realizing and what I've tried to help inform parents over these last seven or eight years is we actually really don't have time to not be activists. And so I think the average parent uh, who, you know, wants to sort of be left alone uh, in, in order to parent their kids um, is realizing that it's taking more effort on the part of the parent to know what's going on in the curriculum at their school, to be aware of the policies that are being changed. And we have to be activists and we have to be aware in order for us to be able to parent our kids and be left alone. So it's, it's, we're sort of in a, it's a cyclical problem that we have to, we have to enter into it, you know, or, or we're never going to see that change. And so that's what I've really been encouraged by is seeing parents go, okay, I don't really have time for this, but I, I realize now I don't really have time to not care, you know, or to not engage in this anymore. So that's kind of where we're at. Uh, that's super awesome. And uh, I, I mean, it seems like with the ability that you have to be able to really juggle all these priorities seems like it seems like we should look to parents like yourself for time management. <laughs> so uh, I, I wish, I wish I, I, I could, you know, really um, be so adept at managing time. But I think that's, that's something very critical with this whole movement it is integrating the advocacy and the activism with the day, the busy lives that so many people have. And I want to backtrack now a little bit to really ask you, and this is kind of just, based on your experiences and your observations or research. But when do you think this this schism between you know, school systems and parents uh, accelerated to this point? Um, would you, could you maybe point a, a specific time or even just things that you think have really exacerbated that that divide between what the school system is providing and how and and the limit, or the the lack of attention that that schools are giving to parents when it comes to getting involved in children's education. Yeah, I mean that's a really complex question, but I I think if I could boil it down, I would say that parents it, it's sort of like a chicken or the egg question, right? Which came first? But I think parents have for a long time, and I think I'm including myself in this, have really relegated a lot of the, I don't want to say parenting, but the education of our children to the schools and to the teachers. And I think there, 
that has come with a lot of trust, right? So we have a lot of trust in our teachers and in our administrators. And so I think with that trust, you know, for the teacher and the school comes a lot of responsibility that, that they have in order to really shepherd the education of our kids. But unfortunately, I think the, the more services schools have started to become almost like a social services organization in some ways where, you know, now, you know, they, you can have before and after school care. I mean, you can drop your kid off at seven o'clock in the morning and pick them up at, at six or seven o'clock at night. You know, if you, um, if you use the before and after school programs, you can, um, they can eat lunch, uh, uh, breakfast, lunch, you know, and, and I think sometimes dinner, I mean, at schools now there's, um, you know, kids that get backpacks to take food home over the weekend, which is a, these programs are really, I think there's so many great programs that are really helping families, but you know, there's so much that is relegated to the schools now where the parents, you know, really don't have to do a ton of work in the day to, you know, just besides dropping their child off at school. And so, you know, so unfortunately, I do think that the responsibility of how much that has happened does, you know, does lie, lie on the parents. And I think it's been very cultural, the way that we've approached education for for a long, long time. Um, What I have seen, and I think is happening in, in this awakening that we've seen in the last, you know, five or so years, is that, Parents are seeing that that they don't necessarily align with their values and with their worldview, the curriculum, the teachers, the you know all the people who are involved, and so because of that, they've had to um, you know look for alternatives like homeschooling, private schools, um, and so so I know I guess again it's a really complex question, but I also one thing that I think that is a whole another podcast probably we don't even have time to get into is this idea that. Parents have, um, I think, our, our society as a whole has sort of pulled away from religion, right? And so, so faith has always been sort of a central part of our culture in this country. Religious liberty has really been a really important thing for people in this country. And, and it came, you know, for a long time, you came from a home where you, you know, you usually practiced or had a, a foundation of some type of faith. Um, and so, you know, whatever faith that was. And I think as we've seen, I think the last um, uh, Barna poll was something like the, the nuns is the highest um, kind of category when you ask like, what religion are you in this country? And, and it's, and you can check none, right? They have all the different religions and then you can check none. And the nuns actually uh, um, are the, are the biggest category now. So, so more and more people are identifying as having no religion. And so I think it's just interesting, you know, and we're not a faith-based organization. We, uh, we, we are made up of people of a lot of different faiths. And I think that that's interesting too, because it has seemed to be a lot of the parents who are of different faith traditions have come together in this issue of parental rights. And I think it's so fascinating because in some ways, if you look at what's happened in the curriculum and in, you know, let's say CRT and social emotional learning and equity and diversity and all the things that you've seen um, entering into this discussion in, in schools and in curriculum is almost a religion in and of itself. And so we get this um, sort of a divide of like, are you um, a person of faith who wants to be allowed to impart your own worldview on your, on your children? Um, and you, and, and that differs from the worldview that the schools are wanting to present. And, and I don't want to use the word indoctrinate, but I guess maybe there's not a better word, uh, indoctrinate your children into. 
So it's almost become a religion of its own, its own in some in some way. So I don't know. That might have gone like way off of the track there on your question, but I do think it's an important thing for people to kind of explore. In so many settings, it seems like faith is replaced by whether it's you know after school hours or some kind of service or you know psychiatry or you know you fill in the blank. That's something that's generally maybe seen as like. You know, policy oriented or scientific, and I'm not saying that policy and science aren't relevant. I'm just saying, you know, when there's a substitution of faith, that becomes very questionable. You know, why isn't there something in tandem between these these different pillars of education? And so, I, you know, I think you really brought up a great, great point about faith. And yes, that is a whole other podcast. Uh, I'll, I'll see how much time I have in the future to start another <laughs> podcast about that. Uh, but I think that's a great topic for future conversation, that's for sure. I really want to now get to th- some of the things here. I mean, you mentioned the services. Um, I have I would say, you know, this. I remember those after-school kind of sort of long days that people can, that kids can be in. Um, I felt that there were never en- enough graham crackers or lunch boxes, so that was my biggest problem <laughs> when I was a kid at the time. Uh, yeah. But that, that's a whole other advocacy platform of the, uh, there f- out for people to explore. But anyway, going into some of the maybe top three or five to five policy issues that you you really think are central to not only just power to parent, but really just parent advocacy. And um, I, I think, you know, there's, there's so many things you can pluck out, but uh, if we, uh, I'd love to learn more just overall um, more about what sort of things has government done that maybe uh, may have had well intentions, but have really made education skew this far into into a very unnecessary and harmful schism between schools and parents nowadays. Yeah. So as far as policy goes, I think, you know, one of the ways that we have entered into this, this discussion and seen a huge parental rights uh, piece that needs to be protected is, is in regards to school choice. And this has become a real lightning rod in, you know, regards to, to, politics has become very polarized. But it's interesting to me, if you look at the real history behind school choice, uh, the where kind of where it started, it really started as a more of a democratic progressive policy. And then for some reason, along the way, they have started to, you know, um, the, the Democrat Party has really started to pull that into the category of being racist and defunding public schools and all these different things, which, of course, we know it does none of those things actually really does the opposite of those things. So it's really interesting to watch that because I know, especially homeschool here in this state in Nevada, we have a really um, fascinating history with homeschool because our homeschool laws are really, really solid. And um, you know, the the families who choose to homeschool have a lot of autonomy to really uh, teach their kids kind of when, how, however, you know, they see fit and leave the government really out of that. And and I know that's been a point, re- um, you know, recently and over the years that that the Democrats will always kind of revisit, you know, to try to um, regulate the homeschool laws so that the, they have to conform with, you know, what they're teaching in state standards. And, you know, the idea that that they want to conform the standards is, is really what we always go back to saying, that's exactly what these families are asking you to not do. They don't want to conform to the standards. They don't agree with the standards. Uh, they have a very different way of approaching education. And 
they are the parent and they know their child best and they should have the right to do that. So that's been the homeschool discussion for many, many years. And as the school choice, you know, discussion has kind of merged into that. Um, there's a lot of nuance in that where a lot of homeschool families don't necessarily want to be lumped into, um, you know, like for example, a voucher system because they feel that once, you know, public dollars go towards education, then, then they can be regulated. And I, and I, definitely, you know, agree that that is a potential pitfall and we want to, you know, keep that in the front of our mind. But policy wise, you know, we have a tax credit scholarship here, a very small one in Nevada, and that's kind of our only school choice besides, um, you know, besides homeschool and, and private school and public school, like just kind of those traditional options. But, you know, I think because I think the, the idea that a parent really is the one who knows their child best. Um, and, and every child is so different. I mean, I, I mentioned I have five kids. I mean, all my kids learn so differently. They all need something really unique, you know? And so I've, I have had the ability to access different options for my kids because I understand how to navigate the system and I understand the choices that I have and, and I have access to more, to more resources than some families. But what we look at from a policy standpoint is, you know, why, why are we still relegating kids in, in these, you know, zip codes to, that are lower income, disadvantaged families to failing schools because they're relegated to the school that's in their zip code because of where they live. And they are forced to go to those government schools uh, that are really failing them and not working for them oftentimes. And we know that we have all the data to show that. So as far as policy priorities, you know, our biggest priority, I would say at the moment right now is trying to pass, uh, we're actually pushing a ballot initiative here in Nevada, uh, hoping to have, we actually have a a case next week at the Supreme Court. Um, we have uh, appealed a, a lower court decision on our on our ballot initiative, so that we can potentially start getting signatures and qualify that for the ballot, so that we can kind of take a direct democracy approach to uh, this idea of school choice. Because we know it polls extremely high. I mean, if you just pull, you go into you know any Democrat neighborhood and you pull someone off the street and ask them if they want school choice for their kid, they will say yes. I mean, they want to be able to have the freedom to direct the child's education. And so unfortunately that gets lost when it get, makes its ways its way up to the lawmakers, you know, and into the legislature. Um, those Democrats will tell you behind the bar that they, um, that they agree with school choice and they think it could benefit their constituents, but they actually can't say that out loud and they can't vote for it because it's just a talking point. It's a Democrat priority and they just won't do what they know is right for the kids and for the families. So, so that's something that we've been working really hard on. And, um, I think another thing that's come up as a policy priority and, and, and it's something really interesting was when they shut the schools down and pretty much every parent in the country uh, had um, to experience this where all of a sudden, you know, they're trying to get their multiple kids, you know, online uh, for, for their classes and trying to make sure they're going to school every day. And, um, you know, and then when we got back on campuses, the, the requirements for the masks and the requirements for, for vaccines. And then we saw in some States that they were passing laws that would allow kids, I think as young as 12 years old to, um, consent to, to vaccinations without, you know, parental consent. So, so parental consent <laughs> in medical decisions, I think, is a huge policy priority because, you know, of course, if you say that in any public, you know, in, in, in any political setting, you get labeled as an anti-vaxxer. But 
I think it's so fascinating because again, I, I use the word nuance already, but there is so much nuance when it comes to what medical what medical decisions are right for your child. And you know, there's people, there's many, many people who are not anti-vax and have vaccinated their children, but did not feel comfortable with the you know with COVID vaccine, and and had done their own research on you know masking kids and had a lot of kids that came home with side effects from wearing masks at school all day that were really negatively impacting them, and so. Anyway, I think, uh, you know, we've seen in Nevada, just to add a piece to that medical um, side, is in Nevada, we have no um, parental notification for abortion. So any girl, no matter how old she is, if she's old enough to become pregnant in this state, she can be taken by any anyone to have an abortion. And then, and the parents don't even have to be notified. Um, you know, and, and, and notification is like, you know, just the lesser burden of, uh, you know, it's less than consent even. So they don't even have to be notified that their daughter, 12 year old, 13 year old, 14 year old daughter has obtained an abortion. So yet of course, who's responsible for that child and for their, not only their, their well being and their emotional health, but, but their physical health, if they have complication, if anything happens, I mean, that's, obviously the responsibility of the parents. So it's just a lot of interesting things that we are looking at on the medical side of um, parental rights as well that I think have been really had a spotlight shown on them throughout the pandemic. Um, and, so, and so I think those, those I would say two things are huge. And you know, those two things sort of are big umbrellas for a lot of little things. Um, and, and just the idea that, that fundamentally parents have the right to direct their child's education, direct medical decisions for their children. You know, no one has the right to, to circumvent parents and go around them and make these decisions on the behalf of their children. And we're just seeing over and over that that is very much what's happening in the public schools, especially. Well, Aaron, that's a great overview of the the, t- the top issues that are facing you know, Nevada parents as well as parents across the country. And um, obviously, we could talk for hours and hours if we went issue by issue. But I want to get started with some uh, more detailed questions about uh, some of these issues. The uh, article, which will be down in the show notes below, and it's an article on the Power to Parent website. And um, Aaron, I'm sure you know what article I'm speaking about, which is an art recent article about a, a parent who literally was uh, was trying to read out a school assignment that her daughter was given, and this assignment is just filled with so much vulgar language that I certainly can't say it on this uh, on this podcast if I were to read it out loud, and she couldn't read it out at the at the school board meeting. And it's just a fascinating read because you you just you can't believe that you know adults they it's almost like uh you know adults these these particular school board members it's almost like one rule for the but not for me that sort of idea of well we can't tolerate that vulgarity here but that has to be thrown onto kids I mean it's it's really madness and I I want to ask you Aaron about. Just in general, you know, using kind of some of your experiences as an empowered parent, but what are the consequences of a society tolerating bad behavior in this set, in this case, vulgar language when when it gets ensconced or into the mainstream of education? What what do you think are some of the consequences uh, that it has on not just kids' education but the ability for parents to get involved in their kids' education? 
Yeah, well, that's a good question. I mean, this is a, not a unique situation, right? We're seeing this happen all over the country. This particular mom had tried to go through all the correct channels to try to get someone to, you know, do something about this assignment that was given to her daughter by a teacher. And there was, a, you know, it's interesting, we've seen a lot of backlash from the trustees here. So she went to the meeting because she really wanted to make sure there was some, some accountability um, for, you know, getting the administration to do something about what happened and in, in with this particular assignment. And of course, they, like you said, they shut her down and they said that she couldn't use that language at a public meeting. And, you know, I mean, I agree. I don't think you should use that language at a public meeting. Um, it's vulgar. It's vulgar language. You know, we have, we do have standards that are set in policy um, and even on the school level, you know, that you shouldn't use that language in the classroom because we have, you know, we we have policies that don't allow it, right? Um, and yet what happened in this case was there was a lot of hypocrisy because the the assignment was a student-generated assignment, which has gotten a lot of um, interesting um, attention because they're like, well, oh, well, a student wrote it, the teacher didn't give it to them, you know, but what actually happened was it was a monologue Every student wrote their own, turned it into the teacher. The teacher edited their monologues and then essentially passed them out to, you know, other students to read other students' monologues. So, so she read this assignment. In fact, she told the mom she actually made it better. So it had apparently been more vulgar and, and before she passed it out, which I think is an interesting piece because it just, what, what I've seen, especially in this kind of younger generation of teachers, is just a real lack of discernment and wisdom um, on what is appropriate. I think, you know, kind of going back to the, what I said earlier, this idea of morality that's kind of been removed. And it's um, you're seeing that that uh, as a society and as a generation, the younger generation, they won't make moral judgments. They, they won't. You can't get them to essentially say something is wrong or right. Um, they won't, they just won't make a moral judgment at all. And it's so fascinating because um, I think you can tell a lot by a culture or by a society, um, you know, on, on, on the sort of accepted norms of, of ethics. And I think our country has moved so far away from whatever the accepted norm of ethics are that I do think that there's a chance that some of these teachers are really um, either they think they're doing the right thing. They're changing the minds of these students and opening the minds of these students and whatever. And it's a, a justice sort of a social justice component or they really just don't realize that this is inappropriate, which is almost even scarier, frankly, to me in some ways. So, yeah, I think that, um, and then, and then of course you already said like, you know, it's okay for me and not for thee. You, you know, we have a particular school board member who had, um, called this mom out online and, and saying that our organization, for example, had used this mom to get, you know, national media attention, which of course we didn't release the video. It was picked up by libs of TikTok and it went viral. But, um, but it was interesting because this same, this same trustee has used almost the same language throughout the course of her tenure in public meetings, on Twitter, you know, on social media platforms. So the fact that they were unwilling to let this mom say it in the public meeting, but then they are themselves using it in the public setting. Um, and then also at the same time, not seemingly um, understanding how vulgar and inappropriate it was for her 15-year-old daughter to be required to say this in front of a classroom of 30 or 40 other kids. It was just fascinating. I mean, in a terrible way. I, I, I mean, I'm using the word fascinating because it's just like, how have we come 
to this place where you look at that and think anything else, then this is wrong and this cannot happen. It, it really is. You, you've really captured that emotion because I couldn't believe it. When I when you sent me that article, I could not believe it. I've seen some other examples too of just, you know, it, it, a society will be determined by its ability to recognize and enforce right and wrong. I mean, that's if anyone wants to create a society, that's basically the first thing you got to think about, in my opinion. And, you know, I, I can't even begin to imagine what you know, what, what my parents would say. And that's why I'm grateful for my parents for teaching me to not use vulgar language, to avoid these things. And I can't believe I have to say that out loud to, you know, when I talk to other people, when we talk about education is that's got to be a given. And yet it now it's become a scarcity, which, you know, that, that kind of just goes to show really just how far we've gone. I don't know if people have seen the movie, a Christmas story, but I've, I've really got that feeling. It's like, boy, these, these people who are, perpetuating this vulgar language they 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 got a lot of bars of soap in their, in their mouths or they should have <laughs> so, yeah, that's right exactly um yeah yeah it, uh, i mean i, I don't want to spoil for anyone who hasn't watched the movie trust me it's way more it's way more exciting and more family friendly than bars of soap and vulgar language but i'm just saying um yeah. <laughs> uh from pro tip or maybe in this day and age, maybe hand sanitizer, maybe let's see how, how some people feel about that. But, but um, anyway, uh, I want to now go a bit more into uh, CRT, critical race theory. This is another issue that you, that you brought up and something that really has been coming about. And, and, and my, I'll frame my question this way, which is Aaron, in your view with, with all this, you know, uh, with all this talk about, you know, CRT and just, just how we can even get to that point of of teaching people kids how to think, not what to think. Um, what have uh, other, have not just parents? What have teachers been saying to you about how the curricula that's being imposed by school board members and by uh, other activist organizations? What what sort of effect does that have on them? And and has power to parent been able to? Uh, talk with some some teachers who they themselves too are also disillusioned with what's happening in our school systems nowadays. So, yeah, I mean that's that's a good question. I think I, here's what I think, and and I'll try to break this down. I, I think it's important to define terms. So, I mean, I think when when people are saying CRT. I think it actually maybe means something different to different people, really depending on the context. And so um, I think it's important to just sort of kind of identify that critical race theory um, places racism at the center of its framework. And, you know, I would say it contends that society as a whole and the systems within are set up to give preferential treatment to white people. So if I could just give a quick overview, that's what I would say CRT is if we're just kind of moving forward talking about it. Um, but also, you know, you hear, okay, well, it's, it's, we don't use critical race theory. We don't use CRT in elementary schools. And it's a, it's a framework for thinking and it's college level and it's all these different things. Um, and so I think it's interesting because, um, it is, it, it did start out as a college level kind of theory. Right. Um, but critical theory, there, there's a lot of critical theories. So there's, you know, critical gender theory and there's critical queer theory. Uh, there's critical feminist theory. So when we're talking about critical race theory, it does, we are talking specifically about 
racism. Um, and I think parents, <laughs> parents on one hand are being told that we are not teaching critical race theory. It's a college level course. And then on the other hand, we're also being told parents opposing CRT do not want accurate history of oppressed people taught and then more racist, right? So, so are they teaching CRT or are they not teaching CRT? You know, I mean, so, so there's also a lot of contradictory um, information that comes out when we are talking about CRT. Um, so I also think um, from a political standpoint, I think CRT gets weaponized a lot, right? So we're in the middle of an election right now. And, you know, you hear candidates that are saying, well, we will not allow the teaching of CRT in our schools. And that gets people all riled up, you know what I mean? And it's a, no, I'm not saying it's a bad strategy necessarily for what you're trying to do, but I just think that we have to be solutions-based. We have to figure out what we're all talking about. Um, we want accurate history taught. That's what we want. You know, parents get accused of um, of not wanting accurate history. And, the, and that is 100% untrue. You know, there's, there's, there are wonderful things in our history and there's terrible things in our history and we should talk about all of them. And so um, I think that's just important to say, but, um, but then you hear, then you on the other side of this, you have this word that is uh, anti-racism. And so that, that keeps seeping into policies. So, so I know in Clark County, we have an anti-racism policy that's being written right now. And what does that mean? You know what I mean? So that's a question that I think parents have to be asking is like, what, when they say anti-racism, what does that mean? Because when you use a word like anti-racism, you're just, you're already assuming that, that there's racism by saying anti-racism, you know, because if you go to me and say, are you a racist person? You know, of course I'm, I, I'm not racist. And I would, I would say, no, I'm not racist, you know, but yet we have to have a policy that's anti-racist. So, so what we're seeing is this, this really strong social justice piece that is seeping into all of these conversations about race and they are, they are infiltrating the curriculum. And we know that, um, I learned something this week, um, that, uh, I had never heard before a new word called a uh, liberatory education. And I would encourage parents to look up what liberatory education is. And there's a whole website about it. And it's really this idea of, um, like they, they've wrapped these, all of these concepts together. So CRT, um, anti-racism, social justice, uh, and that starts to get into gender, you know, gender justice, equity, uh, and, and all these, and all these different concepts. And, and then you get something like social emotional learning, which sounds really innocuous, right? I mean, it sounds very, yeah, we should, we should have social and emotional learning. That's important. Um, but what it is, it's just sort of a gateway for all of this, you know, equity and diversity, um, education that, um, is really one-sided. It's coming from a very specific world view. So yeah, we hear all the time. I hear all the time from teachers actually. Um, I mean, as, as of today, there was a counselor that reached out to me, um, that some of the training that they're asking our counselors to do, and I, and we'll be posting about this probably today or tomorrow on our power to parent, uh, social media channels. If you're interested in seeing more of it, what they're tr essentially training these te these counselors to do, um, is really involved, um, with this idea of anti-racism, social justice, CRT. And so it's, it's, it's in every part of the curriculum is the point. I mean, we had a parent that sent us a, a, a assignment from a statistics class and the questions that they were asking were essentially about, um, you know, percentage of, um, black people, white people, you know, whatever. It was a statistics question who were, um, 
you know, shot by the police or something like that. But it was a, it was a made up question with made up numbers, but that was what they wanted to talk about in the statistics class, you know, like a math class. So it, it has infiltrated the curriculum. And I think parents are just, their eyes again are open and they're saying, I want my kids, it, I don't know how every, you know, this is different all around the country. In Nevada, we have very, very poor educational outcomes. You know, we have, um, I believe like uh, 4% of African-American kids in this district where I am um, were proficient in math when they um, released the test scores in December. 4%. And yet we want to talk about equity and we want to talk about diversity, but our black kids can't read and they can't do math. They can't, you know, we're graduating more kids with lower, with lower scores. Um, and, and more kids are going into remediation classes in college because they've actually graduated them from school districts, but they can't do college level work. So, so we're not educating our kids. And, and I think this ties right back into school choice. And then, I mean, I think most things tie back into school choice, but, um, why are, why are we continuing to throw good money at bad and saying, we need more money, we need more money, but our outcomes are so disastrous. And we've had so many, so many tax hikes. I mean, this is true for everyone. We've poured money into our public, public education system and our outcomes are so poor. And yet we want to talk about equity and diversity. The kids who do the worst in the public education system are our black and brown kids. Uh, you know, that, that statistic that you mentioned, Aaron, I mean, that, that's got to make so many people across the state of Nevada and, and really across, across the country. I mean, just, they just, they, they just, they wouldn't even be able to believe that number. They probably ask you, do you mean 40%? And right. you have to say 4%. It's, uh, you know, that's, that's why it's it's so val was so critical when people like yourself, Aaron, be able to uh, to tell people and share people about what these parents are saying because I I feel that maybe that's one of the things that um, I think is needed is when when parents have these forums to for uh, to be able to converse with one another about what they're seeing. You know, it raises awareness, and you know, it, it takes one person telling two other people, and those two people telling other people. I think it really ties back into some of the things that you've been saying, which is about uh, what a lot of these local leaders are realizing is that they're realizing that um, that education is not being taught. That, and you, you use indoctrination. I think it's a, I think it's a very, very appropriate word because that was that was a lot oftentimes used in religion, which is kind of interesting. We were tying back to religion. Where in faith and in, in churches and and other sites, that was the main form of education, and there was indoctrination going on. And so I just think it's an in, it's interesting how I, I I absolutely think that when we we can point out the evidence and the circumstances, we can absolutely use the word indoctrination because it's got a, it's got a historical tie to it. Yeah. Um, I I think these are really great points. I'm glad you also defined CRT as well because. It seems like seems like vast majority of people can't define this uh, single thing when it comes to like you know these broad c- concepts. I mean, the concepts that you mentioned of just the things that uh, that these um, th- that that these activists try to put out of equity and all that. I mean, it's it's almost like if you have to go around telling people that you're anti-racist or whatever, it, it, it kind of sounds problematic. <laughs> so, uh, it's just insecurity and all that stuff. But uh, I'm sorry, did you want to add something there? Yeah, I was just going to add, I think you sort of started to mention this, but I think instead of critical race theory, we should be teaching our kids how to think critically. And that's like critical thinking, not critical race theory, right? Because if you are thinking critically, if you know how to do that, then you can think through these issues for yourself. And then you're really learning. And then we're really teaching instead of indoctrinating, 
We're teaching these kids how to take information and sort sort it out and identify what's true. That's right. And I think it gives kids more motivation too when they're able to think for themselves and they're able to make the make their own decision. When they make that first, you know, a complex decision I, and they're able to get an outcome, I think that's that in itself is an incredible lesson too. But um Aaron, I know that I'm I'm sure I hopefully your kids have not been impacted as much about from the from the closures depending on maybe the kind of school or the, the school that they went to. I, I can't imagine though just First of all, how many kids there are in Clark County and across the country who have had to go through this? But really, just it just seems like when 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 the kids are stuck on these devices for hours and hours at a time, social and the mental effects are unfortunately are going to come about, and it's not looking good. So, well, what can you tell us just about um, how you go, you all are looking into this issue of not just the closures because the closures have already happened, but really, how do we kind of not only treat the effects of, you know, of mental illness or whatever effects there are on kids socialize, but how we can prevent these further down the line? Well, I, I think, you know, I think parents, again, because of what happened and how, how devastating it was for so many families to have their kids online for so many months, um, I think it would be difficult to try to recreate COVID and, and shut down schools again. And I, I really think we do know too much now. Um, I think we knew too much even when they were keeping schools shut. But now that we're back in school, I think it'd be very difficult to see our schools shut again. Um, I think it's even fascinating that the questions are still being asked, should be the opening schools in the fall, et cetera. I mean, this is so it's so beyond the pale that they would even be considering ever shutting schools down again, based on what we know. Um, and there, I mean, obviously there was so much disruption and, and, and so much learning loss that happened because of, you know, the kids who were, like you said, they were sitting in front of, uh, screens for, for eight hours a day. And frankly, we know they weren't, you know, I mean, that's the other part of that, right? I mean, a lot of them were putting, you know, tape over their, cameras and after they logged on and and then they were playing video games or they were, you know, doing something else and checking out. And, you know, a lot of kids weren't learning at all. And so I think, um, I think it's been interesting and, and, and also just, we know here in Clark County, I mean, devastating to see the number of suicides that happened, um, the highest rate of suicides and, um, you know, ever really in, in, in Clark County, um, because of so much of what had happened with kids. I mean, they lost their, a lot of these, you know, kids lost their senior, junior, senior seasons of whatever sport they'd been pouring their hearts out, you know, and, and, and doing for years and years and years and wanting to get scholarships. And, you know, there was just a lot of disconnect between the people making the decisions, um, saying, you know, well, it's better than having a bunch of dead teachers or whatever the, whatever the conversation turned to. But, um, but we know that the, we know that, the shutdowns had huge, um, huge effect on student student learning. And I think um, I'm trying to recall the exact numbers, but um, I believe that it left on average um, students five months behind in math and four months uh, behind in reading. Uh, and I think that's a that's a national statistic. And and so I know that that's worse for some some districts where they were shut down longer and probably um, you know better for some that were not. But um, you know, also in math students in majority black schools ended the year within six months of, un- with six months of unfinished learning. 
And so, and, and I think in low income schools, it was like seven. So I'd have to double check those numbers, but I know we, we've talked extensively about this because, you know, it's something that we've been really devastated in trying to figure out how to move forward. But, you know, dropout rates have, have skyrocketed. That's something that a lot of people aren't really talking about. Um, and especially the low income families, right? So there, and, and if you drop out of high school, you're obviously less likely to go on to some kind of post-secondary education college or community college or something like that. So, um, so I think, you know, and, and CDC even, I think at the rate of uh, mental health emergencies went up like 30%, um, over COVID and that, that was a CDC statistic. So, you know, so it, there's no, there's no way around it, right? We, we have, we've had a, a devastating, you know, outcome of keeping our kids online. And yet, um, and, and yet I think it's being minimized by those leaders who obviously made those decisions because I'm sure they don't want to have to accept the responsibility. Um, and, and we're seeing more and more how much of those decisions were being connected to teachers unions and how the influence of teachers unions were, um, really, um, huge on whether or not the schools stayed online or went back in person. And, and so they were really, uh, they were really interested in protecting the interests of the teachers and really, really unconcerned with really the outcomes for the children. And, you know, even recently I heard a a school district trustee in my district say that there's no such thing as learning loss, (laughs) which I can't imagine how out of touch you'd have to be to even make that comment, you know, to know that these kids, that they, I mean, we had issues before COVID. Absolutely. We had, you know, our, our percentages of kids graduating and, and proficient in math and reading were, were not good, but they've gotten worse. And, and so I just, to, to look at that and to, to say that there's no such thing as learning loss, I think it's just, it's interesting to me, even being on this side of it and seeing the devastating effects to still be thinking that, there was some part of that that was important or necessary or good. Wow. I mean, I, you, well, gosh, that quote from that trustee, I mean, just kind of, kind of, kind of makes you wonder how, how these people even walk around with any kind of, any kind of sense of, of awareness. I, I was thinking, you know, the, the other issue too, there's, there's been a lot of talk about four day school weeks now, four days, right. Monday through Thursday or something. And, it just kind of makes me realize you mentioned the teachers unions. I mean, there's, there's gotta be, and, and I don't know how often people bring this up, but there's gotta be this element of these teacher unions, just not wanting to, to show up to school. They want to just be comfy in their living room, you know, with the popcorn and the TV on and all that. It's almost like, why don't we just have these honest conversations with, with some of these people and just admit that, Hey, there's people who, you know, they, they don't want to tell students or want to tell parents this, but they really want to be relaxing outside in the backyard rather than doing their job. I, w- I want to just get into some of those solutions now. This is kind of a two-part question for you, Aaron. So first part is, um, what are some things that Power to Parent is working on uh, based on you know, your mission and the things that you've been doing uh, to help parents all across the state of Nevada and really across the country? And number two, what sort of policies and legislation have uh, you all been pushed. I know you mentioned that uh, the, the, uh, the the case that's pending in Supreme Court and hopefully getting that to onto a ballot. Uh, but if there are any other policies or pieces of legislation that you want to highlight that could be beneficial to advancing this conversation about parental advocacy, uh, that would be fantastic. 
Yeah. So I'll start with what we're doing to help empower parents because that is our mission is to empower parents. And so we have developed a parent leadership academy training that we, you know, we, uh, we recruit members and um, really just give them a, uh, the ability to you know, learn how to advocate effectively for their kids. And so that's a big part of our training. Um, you know, we, we do a lot of different events to get parents kind of gathered up. And then if there are issues that are happening that are sort of timely, you know, we'll do Facebook lives and things like that. So, so really the goal, like you said, is just to make sure parents know what's going on because we're so busy. Um, it's so hard to stay up on what's going on. I mean, I might go a week or more without like looking through my kid's backpack confession time. I know no other moms out there do that. No, but I mean, seriously, I mean, I miss stuff, you know? And so, so the goal is to just help inform parents about what's going on and, and teach them how to advocate. We can't be everywhere. We can't be in everyone's classroom. There's a lot more parents than there are teachers and there's a lot more parents than there are union members. And so, you know, just really, Activating those parents is a big part of what we do, and um, and and I should mention, you know, we're actually in five other states. So we, you know, we did start in Nevada. Nevada is our kind of our the mothership, so to speak. Um, but we have chapters in Idaho, in Florida, in Maryland, in Arizona, uh, in Rhode Island. So so we're and you know we're building our our parent army really nationally, because these issues, like you mentioned, affect parents across the country. And parents, there's slightly different policy um, issues. There's slightly different, um, you know, uh, ways that you go about approaching an issue in every state. I can't be in every state. I can't know all of those things. I'm, I'm relying on the people in those states to know that and help inform their parents. So that's kind of how we are, you know, kind of spreading out throughout the United States is just finding pe- parents like us who see the problem and know, you know, help empower them to engage in that process and then, and then really spread their message to the other parents in their state and in their sphere of influence. So that's how we're growing pretty rapidly. Um, because obviously, like we mentioned, this is a huge, these issues are huge and parents are now awake to what's going on really in a very unique way. Um, and then, yeah, so policy wise, you know, Nevada has a part-time legislature. So we only have a session, a legislative session every other year. Um, and, you know, like you mentioned that we're trying to, um, get education freedom on our, on the ballot. That's definitely something that we are, we're approaching from that perspective and, and we're, we're going that direct democracy approach, but that is, um, school choice in general is always going to be a policy uh, priority for us because school choice is a huge parental rights issue in my opinion. Uh, so, so we'll always be, you know, making sure that we can continue funding our small tax credit scholarship. We'd love to see that expanded and, and um, allow that program to grow so we can add it for lower income families. We can add more kids to that program that can access choice. Um, and then, you know, always we have actually a parental rights law on the books here in Nevada. Not every state has that, but um, it's very generic, you know. So the goal, you know, I would love to, you know, depending on the makeup of the legislature in this next cycle, to really expand that to more of a parent's bill of rights that um, really protects parental rights in all the things we've discussed, which is, you know, the education of their child, medical decisions, you know, anything, any, really anything um, that is a parent's fundamental right. Um, we want to make sure that we can strengthen those laws moving forward. Wonderful stuff. Uh, really, really excited for you guys because I, I know you have a really, really incredible mission, a very important mission that is going to spread around across all 50 states and the District of Columbia. 
Um, Aaron, before we wrap up, I'd love to give you an opportunity to um, to really sh- share what you what you're looking forward to when it comes to this movement of parental advocacy. And just case in point, just a few months ago, uh, the very well known left wing city, probably the most left wing city in, in, the, in the country, if not the world, voted to recall three of their school board members for all sorts of things, including closure of schools, including teaching crazy stuff and renaming schools. Um, just kind of based on that and maybe some of the things that you're seeing, uh, what do you look forward to as you continue to grow Power to Parent and some of the things that uh, you just want to share to uh, parents uh, about what they can to do to learn more about your organization and get involved themselves? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I think it's it's a really exciting time to be involved with a parental advocacy, a parental rights organization, right? I mean, and we've been doing this, like I said, on a really grassroots level for, um, you know, for, for almost eight years. But we, we've never seen a time like this in history, you know, in the history of me being involved really ever, that parents are really rising up and taking back their power. Um, and so I think... Um, empowered parents are the key to protecting kids. And I mean, that's on the front page of our website. We mean that. And so I say moving forward, you know, we want to continue giving parents a collective voice and we want to amplify that voice and empower them to do things that we've already said that you already mentioned. You know, I, I think this is not just a, it's, this is not a political issue. It's a movement for parents. I mean, Parents are never going to stop fighting for their kids. They're not. I mean, and that's one unique thing that we have that a lot of other organizations don't have. So as far as momentum goes, I mean, we are on the right side of history on this. The momentum is on our side. And, um, you know, we saw in Virginia, I mean, that we, the Virginia governor was elected almost exclusively because of the parents that were sick and tired of being told that they didn't have the right to parent their children that they didn't know best. And and parents were like, no, that's not true. So so we're going to see, I think in this election cycle, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a primary. We have our primary election um, voting is uh, ends on the 14th here. And then we'll be moving to the general election. I, I think after November, we're going to see a wave of candidates who are elected based very, very exclusively on this idea of parents and parents wanting to make sure they have the right to parent their kids the way they see fit. Um, and, and I think that is a, that could be a Republican, Republican or a Democrat candidate. This is a, this should be a nonpartisan issue. Every parent from all walks of life want to be empowered to advocate for their kids. And they want to be able to have the say in what happens to their kids in education and medical decisions. So yeah, I think that we are going to see a huge, you know, sort of like vote with your vote with your feet sort of situation here where parents are pulling that we we've already seen that parents are pulling their kids from these public schools, right? They're pulling them from the schools. If they, if they're not responding to them and they're, and they're continuing to teach these sort of dangerous kind of radical curriculum. Um, you know, we, there are homeschooling numbers went up, um, a huge percentage in, and, 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 and a really big percentage in the black community. I don't have those numbers on me, but we know that families from all walks of life are saying no to a lot of what's being taught. So, so what I would love to see is just the, a continuation of what has already happened. Parents pushing back, parents being aware of what's happening, parents coming to school board meetings and saying, we are not, we are not teaching our kids this, voting for candidates who 
will elevate the parent voice and amplify the parent voice and make that the priority. And I, I don't see that stopping because parents are, parents are sick of it and, and they are going to protect their kids. Very well said, Aaron. Uh, I, I really, I love this movement. I, I love how you describe it as a movement. I think it's a movement that really brings so many people from different walks of life and the common themes that they love their kids. I mean, how, how amazing of a commonality is that, right? <laughs> so uh, before we wrap up our episode, Aaron, as you know, with our program, uh, we are named after the first four words of Washington's farewell address. And in this show, I highlight those Prince Six values or pillars really that describe the speech and really relate to our, the present day. And that are and they are patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, and stability. Well, I guess with the exception of education, because it's such an obvious one. <laughs> but uh, uh, which of the other five do you think are particularly relevant to our conversation today, and really just the significance of parents rising up for standing up for their kids so that they can get the best quality education possible? Yeah. Gosh, that's hard because those are all really, really good. Um, you know, I think national unity, honestly, I mean, is one of the ones that, I mean, I don't know if you were, would expect me to pick that one, but I think at least if, if we can be unified on this one issue of parental rights, um, I think that, you know, when uh, a house divided against itself, you know, can't stand what I'm completely botching that quote, but but we cannot move forward as a country. We cannot continue to um, grow if we can't have divergent ideas, if we can't have discussions and think critically through issues and disagree, but walk away from those discussions without um, believing that the other person is a hateful person or a horrible person. Now, there's just so such a lack of civility. And I think Obviously, that's connected to a lot of the things we talked about, about faith and a foundation of faith, about all of these things. But if we can't, if we can move forward with and be unified on the idea of parental rights, I think that that would be a huge step forward for our country and would allow us to come together and have a discussion that it, how do we leave this country better for our kids than it is now? Super well said. And, and uh, Lincoln would be so happy with the answer anyway. I don't even remember exactly what the quote was, but uh, he, he would love the idea. Um, but uh, um, Aaron, uh, thank you so much for, for coming on our program. Yeah, I just want to close with some final words here. You know, I think the the fact that you've embarked on this mission, you know, every day you see your kids and you uh, you wish them a great day at school and but you go so much further than that, not just for your kids, but you want other parents to be able to do the same. And I think that's really, really valuable and and something that requires a lot of leadership and a lot requires a lot of hard work on your on your end. And obviously, your team is behind you. It's just uh, it's just very reassuring that you know when I become a dad, you know I'll, I'm absolutely certain to be able to keep these things in mind and be able to ensure that my kids as well as you know, other parents, other people I know who are going to be looking out for their kids too. And so I just want to thank you so much. Uh, I'll include some links down in the show notes below, but I, I really appreciate all the amazing work that you're doing with Power to Parent and uh, all the work that you know, you've been doing yourself to uh, push for legislation and policies that can, that can really steer our country the right direction. So thank you so much, Eric, for coming on our program today. Well, thanks, Sherman. It was it was really glad to, I was glad to be with you. Thank you. 
Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Aaron Phillips. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and hope you will check out the links down in the show notes below to learn more about Aaron, about her organization, Power to Parent. Please make sure to subscribe to our podcast if you haven't already and check out those Friends and Fellow Citizens mugs for your friends and family or for your enjoyment of your favorite beverage. Enjoy the rest of your week and remember a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens.